you have your Bible with you, we will be in Matthew 11 through 13-ish this morning. So um, I, I know I'm traveling pretty fast through Matthew, and, and I would encourage you to maybe read ahead and kind of get the stories in your head because I, I'm, I don't have enough time to stop and explain every story. Because I want us to see the whole, the whole picture. I want us to understand what Matthew is trying to get across on a big level. You know, some people call it, what, the 15,000-foot view or whatever it is. Um, but I, I want us to, to understand that Matthew is trying to pull us into the life of Jesus so that we can understand who he is and what difference that makes in our world, in our lives. So... As you do that, I, I, I want to go back and keep coming back to, to the, the whole issue of credibility because Matthew is trying to help us understand that Jesus has this, this credibility that we can trust, that, that last week we talked about walking the talk. He, he does what he says he's going to do. He does it how he says he's going to do it. But today I want us to look at, well, I didn't get that one changed, right? Today I want us to look at the, the whole idea of consistency under pressure. At some point, if you're, if you're walking the talk, people are going to start saying, I don't like it. That, that doesn't make sense. I, you're, you're doing something that, that doesn't fit. And, and they have opposition. They push back. And, and as, as they do that, they, they bring out in us what's truly in us. The, that, that enemy, that opposition person is the one who can get under your skin because they're touching that part of you that you don't want touched, right? Opposition under pressure shows who you are. And so as, as we go back to think about Jesus, I want you to understand that he is living in a, well, I lost another slide. How about that? Um, he, he's living uh, in a in a cosmic. I don't know how you say it. People are examining him, right? And Matthew gets at that through a series of questions, which is the slide that's not up there. Sorry. What I want you to do is when you begin to read through Matthew, take a real good look at the questions he asks. Because in chapter 11 through chapter 16, he begins to ask a series of questions that, that go to, who is Jesus? Are you the one who is to come, or is there another? Is the start of it. He wants to get in your head to make you ask the questions that will reveal who Jesus is to you. That's what's going on in Matthew 11 through 16. Today we're going to look at the first part of that. The people who are opposing Jesus, you have to understand the culture a little bit. I've got this slide up here because I want you to see that we kind of tend to think that Judaism in the first century was this big monolithic, everybody believed the same thing. We should know better. I mean, how many of you believe that the church in America all believe the same thing? You can go to any church, and they're all going to believe the same thing. No. 
some core beliefs, there's some unity, some recognizable thing that holds them all together, but they don't all believe the same thing. And that's what's going on in the first century. There is groups after groups after groups of, of Jewish leaders arguing with each other over things that they think are critical and God will get you if you don't believe this. That's what's going on. Essenes, Sadducees, Pharisees, Zealots, the guys that are Hellenistic Jews, even Jesus' group, the Jesus followers, it's seen as a different group, Samaritans. I mean, you just go down the list. All kinds of diversity in the first century. That's why Matthew's writing the way he is. He wants you to understand Jesus in that environment. Because all of these guys are going to take a shot at Jesus for one reason or another. They don't agree with him. They may all agree about the temple. They may all agree about being circumcised. They may all agree about what you can eat. But beyond that, there is great diversity. So, as we look at the opposition, opposition clarifies your identity. So let's start Matthew chapter we got the right slide set? No, we don't. Do you have number five? Oops. Aaron, Brett, did you take him number five? <laughs> that didn't get, that didn't get saved right. Yeah, I guess so. At least the slides. The clarity of the sermon may rest in your hands. Or should we expect someone else? Should we expect someone else? Jesus replies, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the, dead, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Wow, what's going on? He just summarized chapters 8 and 9. The blind, the deaf, the lame, the dead. 8 and 9, he's talked about that, John, uh, Matthew has. He's told you those stories. Those are the deeds of the Messiah that John's wondering about. Okay. It's not working? Now I've got it broke all to pieces. Okay. And I had a great picture for you. The, um, let me back up. Now I have to paint the picture. Okay. You have to picture that John is in a prison in Makarios. Uh, Makarios is a prison way out in the desert down south. It's across the Dead Sea from Qumran, about that far south. And it's isolated, and it's kind of like Masada. It's built up on the hill, and it only has one way in. And, and Herod Antipas owns that territory, and he's in trouble with the guy that's the king south of him, <clears throat> Aretas IV. Aretas' daughter was married to Antipas, and he divorced her in order to marry his brother's wife. 
See, it's modern story, right? Peyton Place, first century A.D. John exposes that, and the people start following John. And so what Antipas does is he arrests John and puts him in the Makarios. Uh, you don't want to be there. It's like Alcatraz on steroids. It's so far out in the desert. I mean, he built, the, he built it in order to stop Aretas from attacking him because of what he did to his daughter. And so that's where John is. And John came and he preached a message. What was his message? Repent. Or the one who's coming is going to lay the axe to the root and there's going to be judgment. And that's John's message. And now Jesus has come and he's wondering, he's seeing the deeds of the Messiah, but he's saying, wait a minute, I don't understand this. He's supposed to bring judgment. He's supposed to wipe out the bad guys and only leave the good guys. The problem with that is that John hasn't thought, thought, thought far enough ahead. What happens if Jesus, uh, if God wipes out the bad guys? How many of you are going to be here? I'll have a spare audience. No, I won't because I won't be here either. You get it? And if he brings judgment, that's what's going to happen. But John says, no, he's going to wipe out the bad guys. He's going to take all the bad out and only leave the good. That's our human perspective. That's what we want. That's what we want God to do for us, isn't it? Take all the bad out of our lives and just leave us the good, God. That's what John's doing. And, 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 and Jesus answers him by saying, well, t he tells his disciples, go tell him what you've seen, what I've done. Now, the reason he said, go do what, go, the reason he did it, and the reason he said, go tell John that I did it, is because of the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 35 and chapter 61. Jesus is using the list that Isaiah has already given so that he can go back and say, I've done what Isaiah said 700 years ago that the Messiah would do. Tell John that. So John gets the word. And then Jesus, after the disciples go back, John's disciples go back to him, Jesus says something about John. He says he's a great prophet. But the thing you have to understand is that that kingdom that he was talking about, that Messiah, he says the reed, um, okay, uh, down in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and, violence peop and violent people have been raiding it. Have you ever read enough history to understand how people have used Christianity and the words of Jesus to inspire armies to go kill people? It's happened, hasn't it? I mean... Can't we use our religion and our, and our faith in God as a foundation for violence? It's, it happens. We use it to justify it sometimes. And what I think John is, is, is what Jesus is pointing to about John is 
He is running into that from the groups that I showed you before, right? He's starting to run into the violence, and, and we're going to see it build. He's seeing the opposition, and the opposition is going to bring out the reality of who these people are. And he closes that little section with two little stories. Let's see if this comes up. No. I just saved it wrong. My apologies, people. That didn't work. You can go ahead and turn that off here. The, uh, let me get it back in my head. He ends that section with, with two little word pictures. He said, the children, what am I going to say about this generation? The children don't dance to the wedding tune, the flute. Beautifully done, by the way. Um, and, and the violins, beautifully done. Uh, I'm prejudiced, but I liked it. The, uh, but, but he says, you don't dance when you're supposed to be happy, and you don't cry when you're supposed to cry. In other words, these people, you can't please them. Because John came angry and in judgment, and I came, and you say, I eat with tax collectors and sinners, and I'm just a party guy. I can't please you. There's no pleasing you. And so the opposition is that way. Once you kind of get somebody that you don't like, they can never do anything right regardless of what they do. Isn't that true? You're always going to find something wrong because you don't like that person. You're, you're going to justify your thoughts. And so Jesus points that out. He wants to get their attention. What is opposition doing to them? It's forcing them towards violence. The violence in their own hearts coming to the surface. So the opposition. Well, in chapter 12, and I had a beautiful picture of a wheat field. My stars. I'm going to have to check that slide next time. In chapter 12, Jesus tell, or Matthew tells a story about Jesus and his disciples going through the wheat field. And you've probably read the story before. And the Pharisees are following behind. Now, can you imagine these guys? These guys are, you know, the elite. I mean, they're, they're like the professors, you know, highly educated, know the Bible backwards and forwards. And they're out following Jesus' disciples around through a wheat field in order to catch him doing something wrong. I'm going, wow, sounds like some of the professors I know. They love to find out something I was doing wrong. It's called a test. Okay? And so, so you got these guys out chasing Jesus through the wheat field. And they say, why is your disciples doing something unlawful on the Sabbath? And you go, what is that? Well, I'm going to give you a, a different explanation. I've always explained it in terms that they were working because they picked the, they picked the, the, the heads of the grain and they, they milled them in their hands and they blew out the, the willow and, and they worked on the Sabbath because of that. But I found a new ruling in the Tosefta, which is the stuff that didn't make it into the Mishnah, and it was okay to do a handful. They didn't work on, the, on, on Sabbath if they only did a handful. And so they could do a handful and take a snack. That's okay. It's fine. But some of the rabbis said, but you, if you do it on the Sabbath, you can't 
you can't eat it on the Sabbath. You can mill it, you can, but you can't eat it. Now, why can't you eat it? Well, it's because you have to give the heave offering to the Levites on everything you, you have. And the heave offering is one-fiftieth. So how much is one-fiftieth of a handful of wheat? Eh, what, five or six grains? One set of rabbis said, oh, it's okay. You don't have to give the heave offering on that little handful. That was the liberals. Conservatives say, no, you, it's okay to grill it. It's okay to mill it. It's okay to, but you can't eat it. You can't eat the snack. You can prepare the snack, but you can't eat the snack. Why? Well, because you have to drop the five or six grains on the ground in, in a prayer to God in order to sanctify this little handful of stuff before you eat it so that you're not eating what belongs to the priests. Right? That's work. If you offer a tithe, that's work. So you can do all of that, but you can't eat it because you're eating something that belongs to the priest because you can't drop the grains on the ground. You ever been in? that That just blows my mind. But I've met folks that, that have those kind of rulings in the Bible, even in the New Testament. They add that stuff to Jesus. Okay? And I'm sitting here going, that blew my mind when I began to figure that out. Because Jesus' defense is, David went into the temple and his men ate the bread that only the priests can eat. And so he's saying that little handful, they can eat it because they can eat the bread, that, the, the grain that only the priests are supposed to eat. That's his answer to their question. They didn't like his answer. So they followed him into town, to the synagogue. And when they got to the synagogue, there was a guy in the synagogue that had a withered hand. You probably heard the story, read the story. Jesus, they, Jesus says, they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? See, they couldn't catch him in the wheat field because he answered their question. They were embarrassed. But now they're going to catch him in the, in the synagogue healing on, on the Sabbath, Right? And so here they are. Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to answer your question. So he brought the guy up front and said, hold out your hand. And he held out his hand, and his hand was healed. What's Jesus doing? Rubbing it in their face. Seriously. He is exposing their hypocrisy. He's exposing their heart. They would rather have the guy have a withered hand and be right about Jesus being wrong than they would to have the guy have his hand healed. What does that say about their heart? They say we're following God. I don't think so. I don't think so. And so as, as you look at what's going on, Jesus goes on and, and the people were amazed that he did healing and the crowd says, wow, this is wonderful. And, and their response is, well, he didn't heal him because of God. He healed him because of Beelzebul. He, 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 he did it with an evil spirit. An evil spirit healed him. The evil spirit in Jesus. Now, that's going... That's almost like social, that, that's social media, isn't it? We kind of magnify stuff. 
and the thing grows as it goes. And as, as you look at it, Jesus is being accused of healing by the power of Satan, by the power of the evil one. And, I, and, and he fires back and says, hey, wait a minute, you, don't, you guys don't get it. If Satan's working against Satan and he's driving out his own evil, then that doesn't make sense because his kingdom's going to fall apart. Of course, they didn't think that far because they were just looking for a good excuse to attack him. Okay? And he says there's an unforgivable sin. Now, everybody wants to know what that is. It's basically saying that Jesus heals by the evil one. That's the unforgivable sin. I don't think anybody in here has to worry about that one. Because even if you don't believe that Jesus healed, you're not saying he did it by Satan. Okay? That's, that's what the unforgivable part is. That you attribute what Jesus did to Satan as its origin rather than God as its origin. But he then goes to, Jesus goes on in chapter 13 to try to explain the foundation of what's going on. Why are these controversies in play? Why is he being attacked? Who is he, really? What is the kingdom, really? And, and, and he, in chapter 13, gives a series of parables which is the third discourse in Matthew. He gives a series of parables. A lot of you know them. Everybody has probably heard the parable of the sower, right? Sower went out to sow. Some of the grain fell here, some of the grain fell there, and so forth. I, 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 I preached that sermon I don't know how many times. I want you to understand it's not about the sower. It's not the parable of the sower. It's not the parable of the seeds. It's the parable of the soils. Because that's the only thing that changes in each time. Same sower, same seed, different soil. So what's Jesus trying to do by telling this parable? His disciples even ask him. He says, why do you teach in parables? These people just don't get it. I mean, you talk about simple. You're telling kids stories. Right? What's Jesus' explanation? Well, if you look at this in John and you also in, in, in Matthew and uh, Mark and Luke, you get the idea that he is trying to get across to people something. And he, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah is told to go to the people of Israel and to speak to them on God's behalf. And God tells him before he goes, the people will not listen to what you have to say. They do not have eyes to see or ears to hear. That's Isaiah's, I mean, talk about giving a guy an encouragement. I want you to go out on a preaching tour and nobody's going to listen to you and nobody's going to even act like they even can see you. I'll sign up for that any day, right? No, that's the most discouraging you can say, thing you can say to a guy that's going to go give a speech. They're all going to turn their back and walk out. They're not going to hear or understand or even want to understand what you say. And so Jesus says, I want you to understand. His disciples come back to him and says, why are you speaking in parables? Jesus says, because if I spoke to them another way, they might see and they might hear. And you're going, I don't understand that. 
Is he trying to hide it? Well, if you read the, down into Isaiah in chapter 28 in Isaiah, the way Isaiah began to preach was he began to preach the ABCs. He got more and more and more simple. He, he did connect the dots for people. What's Jesus doing in parables? He's getting it so simple that anybody can understand it. That's what he's trying to do. And even then they refuse to understand. He's drawing them pictures. And they don't even understand at that point. Because they don't want to. What's in their heart? That's the point of the parable. If your heart is evil, the seed's not going to penetrate, he says. If it's distracted, it's not going to penetrate. It's not going to produce fruit. What's the issue? What's in your heart? And so he says in the parable of the soils, you have to have a heart that's open to be penetrated. Good soil. Open soil. And if you have open soil, my seed will grow. It will produce fruit. And then he tells a story of the tares. The tares are master has a wheat field and the evil one comes and he and he and he th- uh, puts nettles in the in the in the wheat field and if you look at them when they're fully grown it's really hard to tell wheat from nettles tares very hard the only difference is the nettles have or the 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 uh, tares have very little seeds they're not worth anything and it's just kind of a grass head there's no grain. But they look a lot alike. You can't tell them apart. Why is that important? Well, he says it's because the tares are going to be fake wheat. Fake wheat. Does that happen in churches sometimes? Yeah, it happens in my life sometimes. What do I produce? Grain or tares? Jesus says, you don't worry about the tares. You don't have to go pull up the tares. The disciples want to go pull up the tares. He says, no, my angels are going to take care of that. You're not in the judging business. You're in the growing, producing fruit business. Don't worry about the ones that are not producing fruit. And then he tells the story about the mustard seed. We all like the story about the mustard seed. I think we get it just a little bit wrong sometimes, though, because it says the mustard seed produces a plant that is large as a tree. Mm, not really. <laughs> in, the, in the original, behind the Greek, Jesus used Aramaic, and there's two words for large in Aramaic. Rav means huge, big size, and rov means a lot of it, prolific. Mustard in Israel in the spring is rove. It's on every hill. Bunches of it. It produces, produces, produces. And it's all over the place. You can't stop it. It's it's a very prolific weed over there. So it, it gets big enough for birds to rest in. But it's, it's, the point he's making is that it's, everywhere the kingdom is everywhere and it it spreads like leaven what does leaven do 
Well, it goes through the whole loaf. It goes through the whole bunch of dough. You just put a little bit in, and you get, you get the yeast goes through the whole thing. Well, that's the same thing of the mustard seed. What's going on with that parable? He's wanting to show that the kingdom is ordinary. One of the reasons that people say, I don't know, is this Jesus' kingdom? They look at the church and they say, is that all you got? Right? I mean, seriously. It's not the glory of the church that's going to impress anybody. It's the glory of what God does in people that impresses things, isn't it? That's what the church is supposed to be. People who have been changed by God, been touched, been being, are being changed. And as, as you look at the parable, that's what he's saying. And then he talks about the leaven. The leaven does the same thing. It's subversive. It goes through the whole deal. It grows. It can't be stopped. But it's mundane. One of the things that, that people look for is if the Messiah comes, John's looking for a great king. He's going to come in a great army. He's going to do a great judgment. He's going to set things straight. Right? He doesn't do that. John says, wait a minute. Are you the guy that was supposed to show up? You're not doing what you're supposed to do. That's the implied message. And so Jesus answers it through the parable. It's mustard seed, guys. It's leaven. It's going gonna, it's gonna to produce. And the last parables that he tells is the parable of the treasurer and the, the treasurer, the treasurer, the treasurer, the treasurer in the field. I got it out. And the pearl of great price. What does that say? If you go find the treasure, you go buy the field. If you find the great pearl, you go sell everything you have and buy, and buy it. You can get it, right? Why? It's about all-in commitment. So what's the kingdom about? It's about your heart. It's about expansive. It's about being infectious. It's about committing everything all in. That's what those parables are talking about in picture form. That's the picture he draws. So who's, who is he? The last part of chapter 13, Jesus goes to his home synagogue and he begins to speak in his home synagogue and they reject him. Who is this guy? Where did he get all this miraculous power? This is just Jesus the carpenter's kid. We know his family. He can't be this all that great. And so as he looks and he speaks to these people, he tries to show them something. He, he, he is giving them something even though they're rejecting him. So I want to ask you a question. When you look at the Pharisees and they run into Jesus and they think Jesus is wrong and they think Jesus should be stopped, what do they do? They plot to kill him. They turn to violence, don't they? They did. When Jesus ran into opposition, what did he do? The opposite. He loved them more. He gave them every chance. 
he simplified it into word pictures so that they could even get the message even if they don't want to get the message so you, parables are designed to work and get into your head even if you don't want to understand what they say that's true they're designed to rearrange your mental furniture even when you're trying to resist them so Jesus gets it down so simple that you, you can't you can't not understand it you can reject it but you cannot not understand it what does he do the opposition pulls out of Jesus love he turns the other cheek isn't that what he said in the Sermon on the Mount he goes out and does what he preaches he turns the other cheek why is that so important it's the only hope you have of getting through to someone who opposes you. It is. Because as soon as you hit back, all communication stops. Doesn't it? Have you ever tried that? When Jesus runs into opposition, it says he withdrew. He says three times in these three in the in between 11 and 16 three times it says he withdrew he didn't fight he didn't continue to fight why because when you hit back you create enemies even stronger ones when you're able to turn the other cheek it keeps communication open as a possibility Which one is the more loving response? What does opposition pull out of Jesus' heart? What does it pull out of the Pharisee heart? I think that's a question that Matthew is trying to, to, to drive home in the synagogues where his Jesus followers are still attending and being with their friends and in the congregations that are being persecuted. How do you respond? You respond like at the end of chapter 11. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take, your yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. My yoke. My yoke. The beauty of Jesus' yoke is he's carrying the weight on the other side. My yoke. He's in the yoke with you. He doesn't just put it on and leave. And he says, it's still open. Well, that passage comes right after he, he talks about woe on the villages that rejected Jesus, even though they saw all of his miracles. His heart's still open. His heart's still open. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Shabbat rest.